Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to sit down with psychedelic rockers, the Flaming Lips, to help us explore their 25-year history. Then it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Kids, that is not the soundtrack to a Cadillac commercial. I mean, it was, but before that, it was the signature song by one of the greatest bands in rock history. I know you are on the same page as me about that, Mr. Cott, and Led Zeppelin is reuniting! Woohoo! Because nobody stays broken up. Doesn't matter if they're dead, doesn't matter if they're century old, doesn't matter. This is for one show and one show only, they say. Led Zeppelin is uh, reuniting John Paul Jones, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page with... Jason Bonham, John Bonham's son, because Bonham, of course, uh, the most innovative drummer in the history of rock and roll, I think it's safe to say, is dead. So, sort of Zeppelin, three-quarters of Zeppelin, to pay tribute to the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan, who died last year. This is a big concert that's going to take place in London on November 26th at the O2 Arena that will also feature Pete Townsend and Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones. Zeppelin of course, we're usually fond of Erdogan, not only for signing them to Atlantic Records, but for promoting so many great blues musicians who they love throughout their career. They're saying this is the only thing that could get them back together, although it's inevitable, Greg. You know, the show's going to go, quote-unquote, so well. Yes. And the fans are going to be so receptive that they cannot be denied, and the inevitable worldwide reunion tour, I'm betting any money, is going to happen shortly thereafter. And I'm sorry, Jim, you cannot call this Led Zeppelin. Just like the Who calling themselves the Who after Keith Moon died, No, it is not Led Zeppelin without John Bonham. Because when the sun shines, we shine together, know that I'll be here forever, then I'll always be Greg, that is the 24-year-old acoustic singer-guitarist Marie Digby, 
Digby is the YouTube phenomenon of the moment, covering Rihanna's R&B smash umbrella. We've been reading a lot about these lately, artists coming from nowhere, and because of the power of the internet, suddenly becoming superstars. Except this one, as the Wall Street Journal recently revealed, in a kind of interesting expose, that this whole thing was engineered from the beginning. She's had two web pages, and on both of them, she's claimed not to be signed to any label, and nevertheless, she was signed by Hollywood Records, which is owned by the Disney Empire, way back in 2005, 18 months before she took off on YouTube, and this whole campaign to launch her on the net was carefully engineered by her major label to make her look like a grassroots, out-of-nowhere star to use the power of YouTube and the internet buzz to get her to stardom. The clip's been viewed 2.3 million times. She's appeared on on that awful MTV program, The Hills. Her music's been featured there. You know, and it's supposed to have come, it's supposed to have been every girl, any girl, yeah. and, and become a star, and instead the whole thing was orchestrated by Disney, just like all those horrible, you know, teen pop bands they give us by making them stars first on their TV shows. It shows you uh, what a sham the major labels have become, what the record industry has become when Digby says herself, I didn't feel like it was something that was going to make people like me when she talked about her major label association. She was lying about being on a label because people weren't going to like her. It used to be like the dream of every up-and-coming artist was to get that big major label deal. And now we have artists who are saying, this is like a taint. It's like, okay, I, I don't look as cool if I'm signed to a label. It's much better to come up through this grassroots way. Of course, the major labels fumbling around, trying to figure out how to co-op this, have, have bungled it once again. Because here is clearly a fake that has been exposed. And now, you know, Digby's career, her 15 minutes are, you know, you can hear the clock ticking right, in the background. Exactly. It's over. That's In a Silent Way, the title track from Miles Davis's record from the late 60s. That was a record that was a shock to the jazz community. And that song in particular was composed by one Joe Zawinul, Viennese-born musician, dead at the age of 75. We're paying tribute to Joe here because, Jim, I think he was a not only a huge, huge jazz musician over the last 40 years, but his influence on the rock world was profound not only playing with Miles Davis on In a Silent Way, also playing with uh, Cannonball Adderley in the 60s, writing his classic tune, Mercy, 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 working with Miles on In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew, two very important albums that saw the jazz world looking at rock and reflecting back on the rock world and, and, and bringing some new ideas into rock as well. Yeah. When Miles assembled the band for the Bitches Brew session, he said, I've assembled the best damn rock band mm. in the world. And in that number were Wayne Shorter, John McLaughlin, Dave Holland, Chick Corea, Jack DeJanette, and Joe Zawinul. So Miles was clearly loving what he was hearing in rock music, specifically the music of people like Sly Stone at the time. He was Hendrix. trying to bring, and Hendrix as well, trying to bring some of that energy into what uh, he was doing in the studio. Zawinul, the keyboardist, was a key part of that transition. You know, the jazz purists hated, hated, hated this stuff. They wrote off Miles after In a Silent Way and into his 70s experiments. Uh, they really didn't love what he was doing. But Miles was uh, ahead of the game, as it turned out, and Zawinul was too. Zawinul broke off from Miles with Wayne Shorter to form Weather Report. And I think, Jim, when you talk about jazz rock fusion in the 70s, I think Weather Report is the first uh, well, band that comes to mind. Absolutely. To bring it back to Led Zeppelin, you know, there was a period in the 80s with all those awful hair metal bands when Led Zeppelin was being denigrated because they led to bands like Kingdom Come, yeah. right? To blame uh, <laughs> Zawinul and Weather Report and Bitches Brew for the dreadful jazz rock fusion of today, yeah. you know, uh, for, and for stuff like Dave Matthews would be wrong yes. because there was a moment in time when it was a good idea and it never got better than Zawinul with Weather Report. Absolutely. Zawinul, like Stevie Wonder, was bringing the synthesizers and the electronic keyboards into the forefront of the instrumentation. He was also very important in, in introducing world music into the jazz yep. lexicon, and he was bringing that energy of rock into the rhythm section. When Jaco Pistorius joined uh, Weather Report in the late 70s, they were never better. Their best album was Heavy Weather in 1978, went gold, actually had a radio hit. 
And when you think radio hit and jazz, you immediately think cheese ball. Well, I don't think there's anything cheese ball at all about Birdland. I think this song still sounds great. Got the energy of rock. It sounds like, uh, one, as one critic called it, an electrified global carnival. All these different influences coming together. Joe Zawinul wrote the track. His keyboards are at the forefront. Let's hear it. Birdland from Weather Report in tribute to Joe Zawinul on Sound Opinions. That's Joe Zawinul and Weather Report with Birdland from 1978. Joe Zawinul dead at the age of 75. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We are here with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Drozd of the Flaming Lips. Guys, welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Hi, Greg. Uh, there's there's Hi, one more Flaming Lip, Michael, and then there's another, you know, almost member of the Flaming Lips, Cliff, our, our drummer who plays live, so we just wanted to make... Right. Let everybody know they weren't just cowering in the corner. Ivan's we yeah. did invite. Right, you did. Yeah. But he's yeah. busy playing with the UFO. Exactly, yeah. The UFO is part of the live show that the uh, the Flaming Lips are taking around the country. Uh, certain select venues, uh, the yeah. UFO drops in, makes a visit, a visitation. We should point out the Flaming Lips have been around for 25 years. This is a band that, as Wayne Coyne once des- described to me, couldn't play, had a singer that couldn't sing from a town that no one knew where it was. Wow. Nonetheless, <laughs> wow. nonetheless, here they are 25 years hey, you later. You can only go up from there. Yeah, right? I mean, what so. an amazing career. <laughs> well, we've done this before. You guys have been kind enough to come by Sound Opinions before in many incarnations. Greg and I have been fans for a long time. One of the things, uh, Wayne, uh, having written a book about you guys, came out last year. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the things that fascinates me. It's a beautiful me, book. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't have to say that. Staring at sound. I didn't pay you. You, you don't have to say yeah, that. Yeah. Um, is that you have this history of a quarter century, and and Pink Floyd is a band both you, Stephen, and you, Wayne, love, and and I love, and we mm. love. It's a mm. common ground. One of the things I've always found fascinating about that career was they were really four different bands yeah, over yeah. the course of thirty or forty yeah, years. Exactly. You mean like you know they re- reinvented yeah. themselves, Sid Barrett, act, and yeah. Sid yeah. second and act and third act, yeah, right yeah. in the dark side years, and uh, then the post, yeah. you know, Waters feuding with Gilmore years. Exactly. Yeah. And we're at a point with the Flaming Lips' extraordinary career where the same can be said of you guys. There were the indie rock 80s. There was the weird career in the 90s alternative rock where sure, suddenly yeah, you yeah, guys are on yeah. Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, yeah. And there is whatever you mm. are today, which mm. is like nothing else well, I think that on started the pop with, music spectrum. With the soft bulletin in 99, a whole new audience came into the band. Um, it, exactly. And yeah, that was like yeah. the third or fourth incarnation of the band, right? Mm-hmm, Wayne mm-hmm. and Steven? I mean, it was... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing how... Uh, you know, Your manager, Scott Booker, once said to me, every time... It seemed like our head was on the chopping block, and it was all over. The career was done. Nobody wanted to hear Flaming Lips music anymore. Something remarkable would happen, and the band would be reinvented and find a new generation of listeners. And now, uh, arguably more popular than ever, playing you know sold-out shows around the world. Exactly, I mean, a yeah. Festival band. Well, I mean, you would you would like to think that we would change, even if we were 
you know, a mega successful band and thought just because, you know, we had these visions that we would go off in these weird directions anyway. But it's hard to say. I do sometimes think that the, um, you know, this, this, we have no other choice. No one likes what we're doing anyway. We may as well just, you know, pursue something else. It does free you up to, to follow without, you know, with utterly thinking, well, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, we could fail. And right. I, I think that's, if anything, there's a lesson to be learned in the Flaming Lips that don't fear failure. I mean, especially in art, I think it's, it's, the, it's the main thing that holds people back. They think, oh, well, maybe people won't like us. And, um, and I mean, in our sense, that's, that's really, I think it's the only thing that saved us, that we, we appeared to be uh, brave when I think in, in reality, we were just, we were, we had no choice. Yeah. Yeah. The things yeah. that happened to us actually helped us out. Like, yeah. you know, when, when Ronald, Ronald Jones was a guitar player until 1996 and that was in the middle of our alternative rock heyday, mm-hmm. as you know. And after he left it sort of, we were forced to try to come up with some other way of making music and it's something we wanted to do anyway. So it actually really worked out for the best. And then we ended up doing Zyreka and the soft bolt and then you're just, you're not the alternative guitar rock band anymore. You're doing something completely different. You came into the band a little later, Wayne and Michael are, yeah, yeah. are sort of like the core members of the I Lips call them the elders. 25. Yes, the <laughs> elders. 25 the years. What did you think of this band before you had joined it? What was your impression of them? Because, you know, the, the lips of 19, mid-80s, people would listen to those records now, I think, Wayne, and think, huh? What, what? Yeah, yeah. That's the same band? I, well, yeah. I do that. I, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the first time I really listened to Flaming Lips was when In a pre Hamlets came out. came out in 1990 and that was well that was a big change for the it band was. because I think that was the original drummer yeah. had quit and they yeah, got yeah. Jonathan Donnie on guitar yeah. Nathan on drums and and Jonathan and who went on to Mercury Rev yeah. yeah and the musicality and the quality yeah. and the production Dave Fridman all that it did that was that was yeah everything that, got that stepped up was, but that was really the first stuff I knew and for me in my mind it jived with exactly what I was wanting to hear like loud like psychedelic rock guitar with almost these uh, you know there's, there's some hokum and balladry involved you know Rain yeah. and Baby stuff like that so for me it was it was everything I would was hoping would happen with music so but I didn't really have the past before that with the funny what well, was interesting to me too about that record that you mentioned in a pre-driven ambulance you know you get hit with this a lot now Wayne but at the time it was revelatory to hear in midst of this time of sort of incredible cynicism and cooler than thouness going on in the indie rock community you're doing this non-ironic cover of a Louis Armstrong a song associated with Louis Armstrong what a wonderful world exactly yeah mm-hmm. and the sort of sense of optimism and every day Psychedelia is like everyday life's a psychedelic experience if you want it to be. I see trees are green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, to myself, to myself. What a wonderful world. We were trying and not not succeeding at all in being one of these life is miserable, sort of dark, brooding, heavy, psychedelic bands. And really, to my amazement, when I heard it afterwards, I really thought, you know, even though this is not ironic, we can't seem to find... Really, what is the message you were saying in there other than just what, what the song is about? And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow are so I think it's, it's always interesting to hear you talk about it. What was it that connected when you heard this record? And then, you know, 
a matter of weeks later, basically, they say, hey, you know, you want to come by and see if you can play drums? Well, yeah, it wasn't that quick, but <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pretty close, though. For me, I guess my, my impression was that, yeah, again, it was this great hard rock riff stuff, but it also had this other side of uh, just melancholy, uh, you know, almost like sort of ballady kind of songs, or There You Are, that's another example. Just It's just acoustic and some weird yeah. sound effects, and just to my ear, no one else is doing anything like that at that point. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We'll be back in a minute with more of our chat with the Flaming Lips. And I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I think to myself What a wonderful Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our conversation with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Drozd of the Fleming Lips and talk a little bit about their tenure with Warner Brothers Records. They came out of Oklahoma City in 1983, but it wasn't until 92 when they signed with Warners and released Hit to Death in the Future Head that the Lips recorded for a major label. When we had Wayne and Stephen in the studio last week, we asked them what it was like to become major label artists. We'd seen a lot of bands signed to Warner Brothers, or bigger labels or whatever, and still took it as this is just simply us doing our art. Who really cares? And our philosophy changed a bit then because we thought, well, if we've got this label that can spend a billion dollars promoting your record, why don't we make a, a record that could is worth a billion? That you could do that if <laughs> if you wanted to. I mean, why why have them there and not take advantage of it? And I and I would say to people who think, well, isn't this some kind of compromise and it's not i mean i think to be imaginative and especially the word creative i mean creative means you'll brush your teeth um with, with a spare tire if you need to whatever it takes you'll <laughs> you'll get it done so part of part of the uniqueness <laughs> of you wayne coins i'm, that I'm you just would actually try that you that, know? that that it's steven did was he like this i mean you know you, we could give him three matchsticks and a roll of duct tape and he would build a stage set <laughs> as we went away it was duct tape anything's possible i want to get back to what wayne was just saying about the ambition when you guys signed to warners and the second album for warners i believe transmissions from the satellite heart it didn't jibe with what you guys were doing earlier in the in the in the sense of that ambition. When I, I remember putting that record on, I back when they had cassettes, right? Sure. Uh, got yeah. an advance yeah. of it advance and then cassette. stick it in a little Walkman, you know, and putting it on my headphones and listening to it in this uh, before this godforsaken show out in some suburb of Chicago. I was waiting for the show to start, and I you know think oh, I'll listen to this record, and I remember just walking. For an hour, out into this field, listening to this record, having my mind blown, thinking I was listening to like <laughs> wow. 4D sound or something. Well, wow. that's it was cool. like there. I was hearing layers in the music, and I thought, how can this little cassette be communicating all this information to my brain wow. and overloading it? The skies are parting now. I've seen something really amazing happen. Wow. So, with that record, transmissions from the satellite heart, 1993, was there a sense of you know we're going to pour everything we've got into this, and we're going to make this really sonically layered, beautiful record? even though nobody may ever hear it. Honestly, it's worse not to make the record that you want because who knows, that probably that could probably fail just as miserably too. I mean, we always knew that. I, I think this sense of just, let's make the sort of record we want. You go in there and you keep fighting away, finding ideas, turning mistakes into the, you know, the things that are really working for you. You know, your songs can take any shape they want. You get to experiment. You get to live with your ideas for a little while, all that sort of stuff. That, that's what we learned making those earliest records. And by the time Stephen and Ronald came along, I think we had a certain confidence that even even if we couldn't make records that anybody bought, we could make cool-sounding records that we would like anyway. And, yeah. you know, at some point, you, you really are just making art. And you're saying, you know, it pleases us, and who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, you can be my head. 
I think because of the sonic density that Greg was talking about, that incredible listening experience that, that every Flaming Lips record is, you know, often, though, your songwriting gets short shrift. And and Stephen and Wayne, you guys really are, are the core of the songwriting team now. And for years, when you've done these radio interviews, we've been trying to get you to show us how, how a song develops. Now, you think that this is not an interesting process, but I've had the experience of hearing some of your cassettes, of you sitting right, yeah. in your living room with, you know, you got two crummy chords on that ratty old acoustic guitar of yours, and then it becomes, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's do you realize. You know, that's how it started? What are you talking about? Or, Stephen, you've got the, you know, I've got this little three-note riff, mm-hmm. sure, yeah. you know, and then that becomes... So, so we got the piano here. Will you show us a little bit how this actually? Should I we do it as like you name a song, or do whatever you want, whatever you want to play? Well, did we mention uh, she don't use jelly? I mean, that as it's interesting because you guys did sort of get typecast with that song it was your breakthrough hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was the uh, wiggy novelty hit. It, it got you guys typecast a little bit as a novelty band, even though when you really listen to the song in the context of that record, I thought it was a beautiful, poignant song. Uh, it was this bubblegum yeah, song with yeah. this poignant lyric. And at the same time, there was this amazing production going on around mm-hmm. it. But yet, mm-hmm. it sort of typecast you guys as kind of like, okay, the well, novelty one-hit wonder band. Yeah, right, that's right. true, I think, of anybody who gets a singular sort of song. Yeah. You know? I mean, if, if, well, if it, you compare it to like Radiohead and Creep, I think they still don't play Creep because they don't exactly. just like that connection yeah. of that and, part of their career. And, you know? But without, without anybody knowing, you, you know, having a simple vision of who you are, they never get you in the first place. So I, we've, we have accepted since then that it's better to get in there whatever they think of you and have them know at least one of your songs or, or your name <laughs> you exist right yeah when we did she don't use jelly even when we were in the studio i think we all thought that's that's got a catchiness that could be like a hit and so i think when the song started we'll go over to the piano sure all right we'll, sure. we'll go over to the piano hello 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 So, so I think um, the section of the song where it says, um, I know a girl who mm-hmm. um, thinks of ghosts. I, I think that is like when you talk about this simple songwriting, I don't even think I knew what the chords were per se, but you play chords and you sing and this thing comes out. And I do remember it came out Almost like you hear it in that sense, where it's a chord and that lyric mm. and that melody. Yeah, you had acoustic guitar and yeah. you're singing, and that was pretty much intact. Yeah, yeah. and you could say, well, that's that's a good enough start because it's a melody and it's chords and it's yeah. got a little a little point to the lyric and it's got a little you know it's got some hook to it. And so the hook was based around just that part. I know a girl who thinks of ghosts. She'll make you breakfast. <laughs> She'll make you toast But she don't use butter And she don't use cheese She don't use jelly Or any of these She uses Vaseline Of course, there's no piano on it, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it would just be cheap, you know, badly played. guitar. You know, uh, simple chords. But I think you can hear wait that. A now wait a minute. <laughs> now it is not logical uh, necessarily. You you just like you know you know I had this line thinks a ghost you know and then and then the rest of the verse came you know most people Wayne wouldn't have gone to Vaseline. Where well, the they Vaseline? Wouldn't. I know. <laughs> what, she puts know. Vaseline on her. What what is he talking about? Well, but a lot of times you know I mean and and a lot of songwriters will do this. They'll simply just sing what they a sound of a word that sounds cool, and you mm-hmm. just will say well through somehow I'll I'll make that make sense in my song for the same reason a, you know a painter would put a piece of purple within the, a tree he just said i did you don't have to have any logic to it in your mind you understand why you would do it um i knew that i had had this thought of putting on chapstick and butter on toast and i i do remember at some point someone saying no, i don't like chapstick because you get it in your mouth and and i talked about argumentative in the same way isn't isn't butter just like <laughs> but you have to remember this was back before you could buy chapstick that had just a bunch of flavors i mean nowadays every every lip balm is is, is some great flavor back then it was just simply some crappy petroleum jelly and and, it, and i mean i'm glad that it was there but it was it was very boring but this idea of Vaseline on toast seemed almost too gross or too, 
it was just repellent. Yeah. But in a sense, it really is not that big of a deal. This is great. Anyway. You know, we've been talking about this song, him and I, since 1993. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard that. Because now, in my mind, I can see exactly you having a four-hour argument with somebody yeah, about exactly. how is putting Vaseline on your lips any different than putting butter on toast. Right, right. I mean, it's just very, it's very normal. Yeah, but you're I, weird, Wayne. You're but weird. I could People understand don't talk about that stuff. where the you audience do. would would think of that song, especially Vaseline having the sexual connotation that it does and i, I think well that's, that's the fun. other great thing yeah. because there is this school of rock critic fanzine theory that came out <laughs> around that time that this is a, a this song with its three verses is actually code for sex drugs and rock and roll yeah because right. we have the girl who goes to shows mm-hmm. we have the girl who puts you know vaseline on her toast yeah. and then we have the the girl who uh, blows her nose or the guy who yeah, blows the his guy nose, who blows his nose blow nose right yeah yeah, you know? yeah yeah and then we have share as i guess because the last lyric is Right, right. I know a girl who <laughs> reminds me of Cher. <laughs> She's always changing the color of her hair. But she don't use nothing that you buy at the store. She likes her hair, too. I can see them laughing in their head. <laughs> Be real orange, she uses tangerines. Now, that's not rock and roll. That's Cher with orange hair, but I can yeah. see where, so, yeah, if any, that? you know, if you're looking for an answer, as usual, you'll find it, and that's what I, I, I think it, uh, yeah. that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. The drum sound on that record is pretty remarkable. Um, was there any particular, I mean, other than the fact that you're a really good drummer, Stephen, what the heck was that sound? It was kind of like, I described it as sort of Bonham-esque at the time. Yeah, it was yeah, very yeah. heavy, yeah. and you were writing these kind of pop songs, but they had this huge sound. It was, yeah, right, we it was thought, heavy. Yeah, we thought that was an, an interesting thing to try to do. I, I yeah. think where that came from for me originally was, uh, and it's, you know, our drum sound ended up being so much more extreme than that, but uh, actually it was the drum sound on U2 War. I always thought Larry Mullen's drums were kind of distorted and overdriven, which they mm. are. Mm. Yeah. Nothing like we had on Transmissions. And uh, we had recorded one song for Transmissions called Teenagers in the Himalayas. <laughs> and uh, we just recorded the drum kit like you'd normally record a drum kit. with no, in, our old, in our old style. In yeah, sense, just you'd yeah. mic everything up close yeah. mics, maybe mm. a little bit of room mics, and there was no overdriven sound or distortion. And mm. It just seemed real flat. And then luckily the very next song we did was Slow Nerve Action, which was the opposite of that where the drums are completely blown out. I mean, they're distorted with an effects processor and through the board and all that. And then we just decided that would be the drum sound for the rest of the record, just toned <laughs> down. Uh-huh. And it tr- that was truly Steven's doing. I mean, he, he had the style. But it, but again, it's not just that you have this ability to play. I mean, when we're talking about r- r- records, you know, it's about how do, how do you record it? What's, what is the sound? And if you stand in a room, like even if, if you stood in this room and Steven was playing, the fact is your ears would distort because he's playing so loud that your ears hear the sense of a distortion. But if your engineers were doing their job correctly, they would record it to the in there and there would be none of this distortion. It would be this utterly clean drums being hit. And we would always fight about this idea of like, man, it doesn't sound like that to me. It sounds... And really, Stephen just said, well, let's just distort it. And this, the second you hear it, you're like, yeah. And then you mm-hmm. just go a little bit further and say, well, let's distort it a bunch. And then it's just a just a lucky combination. It's all a waste of time again. She used to mold I think a, a key part of this band was obviously the live performances. I can memorably recall the shows with that four-piece lineup. When Ronald leaves the band, clearly a kind of a watershed moment again, right? Stephen and Wayne, I mean, yeah. thought like, and, okay, and what are we going to do now? We've got a different lineup all of a sudden. Yeah, and, and rightfully so. I mean, as we realized what endless potential this weird, shy guitar player had, he just exploded in unexpected ways. That we sort of let him just be like, yeah, let him, let him go, and especially live. And we all knew it was something. I mean, we played it up like this is something, this is cool. <laughs> so what are we gonna do? When, and then I sing. Then yeah, and then of. when and then when he leaves, say, oh, it was nothing. 
Uh, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like I actually went. I think on some basic levels, I think we started to get burnt out too. I really do because uh, we yeah. we yeah. recorded and we, we toured constantly. Mm-hmm. We were constantly yeah. doing stuff, and I think you know, I honestly, I started doing more drugs, and Ron became more and more of a paranoid and just uh, just always agitated. And I think on just some, some real basic levels, we just got burnt out. So the band re- really retooled at that point, and I remember the the parking lot experiments. You would show up. You would ask people to show up voluntarily at a at a parking garage. Exactly. Flyers, they and you're gonna flyers. give. We're gonna give you a a cassette. A cassette. Everybody's gonna get handed a cassette with your car, and Wayne, sort of in the carnival barker role, with a megaphone, saying, "Start your engines, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> One, two, three, countdown." And everybody presses the button, and the symphony from all these cars stereos would be going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And each of those cassettes was was had an individual track or an individual part. It wasn't yeah. the same thing exactly, right? It well, was, I mean, it would depend. It was just, you treated it much like an orchestra. Yeah. If you wanted to, there to be forty John Coltrane's playing, you put forty on tape yeah. playing different things. Or if you right. wanted to be a, a dog barking over there while while a, you know a, a, a harp player played right in front of you, well, you just do it. I mean, it was it was meant as as organized sound, and you could really do whatever you wanted. It was cacophony, but at the same time, everybody had this big goofy smile on their face, kind of like this is. Just ridiculous, and the, and the ridiculousness of it all was part of the fun. And, and again, we have to sort of the mindset of people at the time. I think we were all thinking, "Man, I wish something new would happen. I wish someone would take a chance." And whenever I say that, I always go, "Why don't we? I mean, why don't we be the ones to do something new or take a chance or whatever?" It was almost as if having the pressure off. Warner Brothers is going through a lot of changes here too. Well, exactly. All the people who Ooh, signed you, the yeah, label, yeah. were gone. You yeah. know, and it was almost. You know, I, I think the famous quote you had is, "We were like a cockroach scurrying under the rug." Exactly. You know, when you turn yeah. on the light, we didn't want anybody to realize we were still around, so they couldn't fire us. Or, and we'll just come back and make a record when there's a new regime. Yeah. Or not make too much of a fuss, demand very much. Is they're like, "We're over here making art. Don't worry about us. Right. When you get exactly. your business sorted out. We'll be here to you know to help." But you your out. last yeah. record only sold nineteen thousand copies, <laughs> and well, well yeah, you know, <laughs> which is the chronic thing. But you know, yeah. so. In retrospect, we look at the history and it's like they did this two-year period of, of uh, sonic adventurousness and, and, and weirdness, and then they came and gave us this pop masterpiece. Let's talk about Soft Bulletin. Well, I mean, I think the signature song, when people think of the, uh, if there's a song associated with this optimism or whatever, this thing that accompanies the softball, it has to be like Race for the Prize. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. become one of our songs. I don't even remember what our lives were like before we had a song like Race for the Prize, (laughs) you know? The prize, I think, was a song that the melody. The was it? How's the the, the melody? Yeah, there? I had that for a long time. The da, 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 that thing there, and we thought it sounded like it could be a car commercial or thing. Yeah, or something yeah. Like that, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, um, uh, well, actually, the funny thing, Wayne, is like on Cloud's Taste Metallic, there's a couple of songs that I brought in, and Wayne turned them into Christmas at the Zoo and. These songs about animals, and I was like, "Man, Jesus Christ! I hope he doesn't do another song about animals." You know, and uh, so yeah. we've been poking around with this, these melodies for a long time. And then he came up with the lyrics that he did for "Race for the Prize," and that seemed to me that was a big turning point because that was one of the early right. songs we did for that. You know, now you're singing about jogging around the lake with your brother, yeah, racing yeah. for the prize. You know, and mm-hmm. and, and and knowing your father is dying right. of mm-hmm. cancer, and he's not. There's nothing. You know, people say things like, "Let's cure cancer." Well, yeah, you know, who? Yeah, who? yeah. Who? I hope somebody you know. gets to work while I'm. Well, yeah. While I'm I don't. I don't records. know if you could have written that directly about something that personal in no, your life. I, no. I, the guy I met in '93 yeah. wasn't writing like well, that. Well, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, the experience changes changes you. Uh, luckily for me, and the band, in, in a sense, it changed us for the better. It made it seem like this was a way that we could do our art and express ourselves and still be a band and still be weird, but we could really sing about our inner life without restriction.
We're going to continue our discussion with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Drozd of The Flaming Lips after a short break, and then it's time for Jim to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and you are listening to A Bit of Do You Realize by the Flaming Lips from Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Do you Yoshimi, along with the Soft Bulletin, marked a real departure for the band in terms of the way they wrote songs, the way they performed them live, and the sound of the group itself. Before we wrapped up our chat with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Droz, we asked them to play a song from one of these albums. If you guys could do a song from uh, one of those records, I mean, just you know, pick one that you think is kind of well, representative. I mean, if there's, and- a, if there's a song, I mean, even though it's called Yoshimi Battles of the Pink Robots, I mean, that song is, in a sense, I think, still that bubblegum kind of thing. Yoshimi Battles of yeah. Pink Robots has been interpreted a million different ways, and yet it still feels like you understand, everybody kind of understands what it's about. Still, it, it, that to me feels like a, a psychedelic, whimsical song, even though I think it's placed within But they this, can understand you know, David and Goliath. They can understand well, a little again, yeah, Powerpuff it, Girl yeah, fighting this yeah. monster, you know, kind of thing. And... Um, I don't think we struggled that much with that one. As as the track goes, I think by then we were already finding a sound and a theme and a color to these things. And by the time we came up with Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, the song, we felt like, yeah, that's going to work. The secret behind the Yoshimi record is that the, the, the robot kills itself, and Yoshimi is the only one that knows that. And so by her having this battle with this evil robot, this evil robot has sacrificed itself for Yoshimi. And Yoshimi learns a lot from this robot and says, we should be more like this robot. Yet everybody around her hails her as the hero that mm. killed off the evil robot. Right. And yet she's the only one that knows there's something deeper going on. And so maybe it is those little themes that always keep it from just being oh, forgettable or un, you know, one-dimensional or whatever. Uh, but, um, but the song, I still think, um, feels kind of just like a normal, whimsical mm-hmm. cartoon song. So we'll play, a, we'll play a second of that. Well, now we're playing it sort of uh, live like this anyway. We're sort of doing a stripped down, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. a piano and singing version. So, uh. And this was a song, this was a chord progression that Stephen had that we didn't have anything for for the longest time yeah. until we stumbled upon this title, Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots. And... Um, me being the only one that knew this sort of secret story behind there, you know. Her name is Yoshime. She's a black belt in karate. Hey, hey! And then Michael screams that out. <laughs> Forgot to do that. Working for the city. has to discipline her body cause she knows that it's demanding to defeat those evil machines 
I know she can beat them. Oh, Yoshime, they don't believe me. But you wouldn't let those robots eat me, Yoshime, they don't. Those evil-natured robots Who can't you, Yoshimi? They're programmed to destroy us She's gotta be strong to fight them So she's taking lots of vitamins Cause she knows that Cause she knows that It'd be tragic, it'd be tragic if those evil robots win. Evil. I know she can beat them. Oh, Yoshime, they don't believe it. But you won't let those. Yoshime, they don't believe me, but you won't let those robots defeat me, Yoshime. I see that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Critical response to uh, Yoshimi and to Soft Bulletin mm. were nothing short of ecstatic. Mm, totally. Much. I mean, you know, critics yeah. kissed your butt. Totally. Uh, yeah. Mystics pretty much got trashed by, yeah, by yeah. quite a few critics. But I... I felt like that was inevitable. Yeah. It was time for the backlash. It's almost like bring it on and then and then we'll get done with it because this is what... And I, I am, am guilty of this as well. You can only say a band is really genius and great and important... Because you know that gives you the right to say that they suck when they suck. You know what I mean? When we started to make it War with the Mystics, I didn't really want to make something that would have to be another Do You Realize. I wasn't yeah. consciously thinking, man, we need another one of those so we can put out the greatest hits of, of optimistic funeral songs. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was just... Yeah, you heard we, it were really, gang, yeah. we were really more than glad to just uh, to win a Grammy for a song called... Um, the the wizard puts on his werewolf moccasins, or you know, yeah, with, yeah. you know. I mean, we were more than glad to go and be a weirdo rock band because we are that as well. And so we're not trying to be Bon Jovi. I mean, and so we probably aren't going to become Bon Jovi. You know, we're 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 always, if we're lucky, we're always thrown into the unknown. We're confused as well. But I think that's how some art has to be made. You know, it's like we've been doing this for hours already. We could go for five hours more. You guys have a show. We do. But thank you, Stephen Drost, Wayne Coyne. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, guys. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a record that we cannot live without. And this week, it's Jim's turn to pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox.
Thank you, Greg, for the big introduction. I was really tempted this week in the wake of uh, the Video Music Awards to play something about Britney Spears, <laughs> but instead I'm opting for this, my second best choice. Young Marble Giants are a fascinating Oh, excellent band. choice. I, I like knew I'd much better than Britney. I knew I would surprise <laughs> you with this one. This is a group that is, is I got to say, probably 99 out of 100 listeners to the show haven't ever heard of them, but it's one of those things where, where the people who have have embraced them and embraced them deeply, and they've changed their lives. I know fans who, who have listened to the one and only album this group made for 25 years now, and they love this band. They worship this band. You hear echoes of them in groups like Bell and Sebastian and all of those orchestral pop bands. Courtney Love and Hole yeah. on their best album, Live Through This, covered the song I'm going to play. Who were Young Marble Giants? An incredible female vocalist, Allison Statton, and the brothers Stuart and Philip Moxham. And it's 1980. Punk rock has torn through England, turned the scene upside down, inside out. The new wave is continuing and raging strong. And then this group comes out on this then tiny independent label, Rough Trade, and does completely the opposite of what's reigning supreme on the English charts. Young Marble Giants were punk by being quiet. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very quiet and minimalist. They took the ideas that Eno had explored on his ambient recordings and put them in a little bit more of a pop or rock setting using the barest of ingredients, a little bit of keyboard, Staten's incredible voice, some really smart lyrics, and most of all, space. A lot of space. The music is all about the space. And because there was so little there, it's fired people's imaginations forever. It's like you complete the picture. I think that's the key to their allure, and never more so than on this track. As I said... Courtney turned this song into a very appropriate rocker on Hull's Live Through This. It's called uh, Credit in the Straight World. You know, at that point, most hated woman in rock and roll since Yoko Ono, she was saying, you know, I can't get no credit in the straight mm -hmm. world. I think that what Young Marble Giants were saying when they first recorded this was that uh, we are all outsiders. You know, go for credit in the straight world, look a dealer in the eye. Go for credit in the straight world, lost a leg, I lost an eye. You know, I'm <laughs> never going to get fit in. And yet here they are now. 1980, this album came out, Colossal Youth. It's just been reissued in a beautiful box set with a nice booklet with liner notes by uh, the English rock critic Simon Reynolds. It's got one disc with the entire Colossal Youth album, another disc of all the stray singles they ever did, their Peel sessions, and they're reuniting in the spring for one show and one show only, just like Led Zeppelin. But we'll see. Maybe they'll come back. I think it'll be a great thing. Here's some credit in the straight world by Young Marble Giants. Credit in the Straight World by Young Marble Giants. I highly recommend Domino's new box set. Way cool. Colossal Youth is the name. Greg, what do we have next week? Next week, Jim, we've got a band that uh, we absolutely loved, loved, loved. Uh, last year they came out with a terrific album with a great song called Roscoe. The band Midlake from Texas is going to be live in the studio for an interview and a performance. As always, Greg, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and we had a little help this week from Brian Schwab, who engineered our session with the lips. As always, our executive producer, our fearless leader, the man to whom we look up 
is Tori Southside Malatia, who uh, I heard has been on YouTube himself trying to make a name for himself. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys. uh, Thanks for putting together a show that pretty much brought together the perfect storm of what's wrong with the, uh, the music industry at the moment, the, uh, the self-parody of, of gangster rap, uh, the RIAA and ASCAP suing the little guy, uh, and this growing sense among the general public that uh, the only reason why people make music anymore is to make money. I think it's absolutely scandalous and hysterical that Vincent Candelaro can get on the air and tell you with a straight face that uh, he's helping artists and he's helping the music industry and he's promoting creativity uh, by going after a bar that has 50 seats in it or 100 seats in it and making sure that they pay their fee every year. music industry spent 100 years convincing everyone that the way to make money was to sell physical media. And now the physical media is vanishing. They're in a panic. And so now they have to try to pretend that we were never paying for the physical media. We are paying for a licensing fee. And everybody knows it's a load of crap except them. Thanks for exposing the truth, guys. My name's Jim Marks. I'm from the south side of Chicago. Work it, make it, do it Makes us harder, better, faster, stronger That, 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 that don't kill me Can only make us stronger I need you to hurry up now Cause I can't wait much longer I know I got to be right now Cause I can't get much stronger Man, I've been waiting all night now That's how long I've been on ya Hi, it's John Carr from Minneapolis I cannot believe what I just heard on the show with the two of you kissing Kanye West's ass. <laughs> the guy has no talent. You know, you keep talking about this great music, nowhere to be heard on the stuff you were playing, probably nowhere to be heard on the rest of the CD. You guys doing that is like Siskel and Ebert, you know, thinking House parties is as good as Citizen Kane or something. <laughs> you guys need a reality check. Goodbye. Hey, I just wanted to sound off on the Kanye uh, 50 Cent. Kenny Chesney thing. There's a problem when we buy into the record companies hyped up competition to sell albums, very little of which and the revenue why it goes to the actual artists. I think we should go see them live. I'm not a big fan of 50 Cent, Violence and so forth. I think there are a lot more positive artists out there like Common, A Tribe Called Quest. Kanye West has, has some positive messages too, but that's all. Uh, my name is Jason. This is Matt from Redlands, and Kanye West is going to blow 50 Cent out of the water by far. Yeah, this was uh, Mike Rome from Chicago, Illinois. And uh, I just wanted to be basically a comment of uh, agreeing with you guys as far as the whole you know, gangster rap versus the new breed of hip-hop, that being Kanye West. I get so sick and tired of this, this big boy bravado that artists like 50 Cent put on. Just as you said, like... We have no weaknesses, you know. I'm, I'm going to shoot you if you don't like me. Whereas Kanye will totally map out a whole different sound for each album that he comes out with. And he challenges that B-Boy bravado you know, with each album that he comes out with, which is something that I wish more hip-hop artists would do. It seems like hip-hop nowadays, more as is uh, these 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 rappers that try to come out, they try to follow uh, people like 50 Cent with this, you know, this gangster bravado, but not knowing the roots of real hip-hop. The whole notion that hip-hop is all about bang, bang, shoot them up is totally false. And I think that... It, Kanye brings that out with his new album. Very creative. It was a very different sound. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to leave that comment with you and uh, definitely keep this debate going because I like the direction in which uh, it's uh, definitely going. It. So, peace. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, 
call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.